you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to Psalm 139. If you're just joining us today, uh, we've been walking through uh, this book of prayers, the, the book of Psalms, over the last uh, month or month and a half or so, a couple months maybe. And uh, we're going to continue that today with an exploration of Psalm 139. When I say the word surrender, what comes to your mind? Uh, see someone chuckling. I'm sure we all have different things come to mind. One thing that might come to someone's mind perhaps would be World War II and the, the demand of the Allied forces of the Axis powers that they would surrender unconditionally in order for the war to come to a close. Uh, perhaps some of you, I'm not, but perhaps some of you uh, watch MMA. You're familiar with this mixed martial arts fighting. And, and when you are being beaten by an opponent, you can tap out. You let them know that you are surrendering. When I think of surrender, uh, one of the events in my life that immediately comes to mind uh, takes me back to high school. When I went into high school in Ontario, high school was grade 9 to 12 uh, back then. I went to a small school that just had one basketball team, a senior team, and, and I tried out and I made the team. And I remember the first practice, as the first practice following tryouts concluded, I, I noticed the senior players on that team looking at me and beginning to come at me. And I realized that wasn't good and, and I, I ran, but I didn't get far. They grabbed me. There were too many of them. They were too big and too strong. And I was being initiated. I think you might call it hazing today. And so I surrendered to what was inevitable. There was no way I was going to get out of that. And so I left practice that day with, just say, marks on my body. Uh, I surrendered to what was coming, what was inevitable. This morning, I've entitled my message, A Prayer of Surrender. I, now, it's vital that we understand that Surrender is always hard, but, but it's not always a bad thing, such as I described from my high school basketball experience. Uh, but the theme of surrender is what we are going to fix our minds on this morning. It is what we will be focusing on. Uh, we're going to explore Psalm 139, a prayer that brings us face-to-face -face with reality, with what is true, with what is, is the situation for every one of us. And the choice that we necessarily face is what will we do in, face, in the face of that? Will we resist or will we surrender? That is the choice that we will uh, be faced with this morning. I'm going to read, if you have your Bibles, this psalm is a little bit longer, 24 verses. I will read it for us. I invite you to follow along if you have a Bible. And if you don't, uh, just listen as I read God's Word. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. 
your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This morning, we're going to walk through this and unpack it. And we're going to do so in three sections under three headings. First, the environment we're in. Second, the feelings we experience. And third, the dangers we face. The environment we're in, the feelings we experience, and the dangers we face. We begin by looking at the environment in which we find ourselves. Uh, There are a number of important theological truths that are expressed within this psalm. Uh, A number of theological truths about God, about who He is, about what He is like. I'm going to reread for you the first six verses, the first stanza of this psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, uh, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The key word in these opening verses is the word knowledge. It speaks of God's knowledge. God knows God knows everything. The theological term for that is is omniscience. God is all-knowing. And look at how David describes the knowledge of God. He says that God knows when he sits and when he rises, that God knows when he goes out and when he lies down. God knows all about David. He says he knows that. You are familiar, verse 3, with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. David concludes the first stanza by saying, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The doctrinal theological truth asserted in these opening verses is God's omniscience. God's knowledge is exhaustive. God knows everything. One scholar says this, God knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. God knows comprehensively. There is nothing that God does not know. 
we read on and we encounter a second theological truth about God. And that is God is not only all-knowing, but God is all-present. He is omnipresent. Look at verse 7. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And at this point in the text, there's a series of uh, a literary device called a merism, basically saying uh, two opposites to include the whole. So, for example, if I lost my keys and I, I look for my keys everywhere, or I could say I look for my keys high and low. Now, we, when we say that, we don't mean I just looked high and low. No, I looked high and low and everywhere in between. I looked everywhere. And so this, this literary device is used here uh, to, to speak of God being everywhere everywhere. Uh, God is in the heavens and the depths and everywhere in between, up and down. God is east and west, the wings of the dawn where the sun rises, the far side of the sea and the west where it settles, uh, east and west. No matter where I go, God will be present everywhere in between, in the light or in darkness. Even in the darkness, the dark will not be light to God. It will not be dark to God. God, uh, God will see. God is present there. There is nowhere where you can go where God is not present. There is nowhere you can go where God is absent. God knows everything and God is everywhere. But there's still more that we discover. We read on and we come to a third theological truth about God. Verse 13 we read, uh, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Here we encounter God's omnipotence or His power to create all things. Everything that is has been created by God. God has creative power. God is the one who has created everything and everyone in every detail. The psalmist speaks of God knitting him together in utero, creating him. Verse 15, we read, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth is simply a way of speaking of the concealment of the womb. Derek Kidner writes this, God not only sees the invisible and penetrates the inaccessible, but he is operative there, the author of every detail of our being. I want to take a moment for a brief aside. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, David is not writing about abortion, of course. Nothing could be further from his mind, but no one can read these verses thoughtfully today without considering their obvious bearing on this important contemporary issue. God is the creator of all, of everything and of everyone, and God's creative power begins in the womb. At the point of conception in, in every woman's womb who conceives, God is at work. God is knitting together a being of incredible value, a being who is an image bearer. Many in our culture, many all around us speak of mere tissue. It's just an embryo. It's just a fetus. And, and I just want to say, no, it is not just tissue. God, the creator, God, the powerful one, knits every being together from that moment of conception when that ovum and sperm become an, uh, are united. God is knitting together a being that bears his image, a being of incredible worth. And I want to say this. 
if there's anyone here listening this morning who has had an abortion, if you have encouraged someone in your world to have an abortion, I, I want to say that God is gracious, that there is forgiveness. This is not about guilt, but this is just to say that Scripture makes it so clear that, that God knits together every being already in that person's mother's womb. God is at work creating. God's power is at work. And, and we as the church need to stand for life. I've heard those who, who follow Christ say some of these things. Oh, we can't say it's a person. And, and I want to say from this scripture that God is clear. God, the all-powerful one, is at work in every single womb at the moment of conception. God is the one who knits every person together. And it's wise for us as Canadians to realize that Canada is one of only four countries globally that doesn't have a single law when it comes to abortion protecting these lives created by God with inestimable value. Returning to our text, our exposition, this psalm reveals these important truths about God, that God is omniscient, that God knows everything. His knowledge is exhaustive, that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is nowhere you can go. There is nowhere I can go where we escape His presence. And God is all-powerful. He is the creator of all things. These are important theological truths. But I want to say that if we simply hear these as theological assertions, uh, then, then we have missed what is critical in this psalm, in this portion of Scripture. Theology must never be merely an intellectual uh, matter. It can't be only a, a head thing. It, it's, this is not simply about us knowing about God. No, uh, if we read this text well, we will see not only these truths about God, but we will see that these truths about God are intensely personal for us. God doesn't just know generally. God knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. God's not just present everywhere. He's present with you always. Always. You have never escaped His presence. God has all power. He is the one who has formed you, who has created you. You are wonderfully and fearfully made by Him. This is not mere theology. This is intensely personal. Alexander McLaren writes, this is not mere omniscience, but a knowledge which knows Him altogether, speaking of the psalmist. Not mere omnipresence, but a presence which He can nowhere escape. Not mere creative power, but a power that shaped Him God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, God's omnipotence are not mere theological truths to David, nor should they be that for us. They are, in fact, the context in which we live, the environment in which we find ourselves as human beings. We live in, in the face of God who knows all, who is everywhere, who has all power. James Mays writes this, that the psalm, this psalm, this prayer, gives us and nurtures us in, in an awareness that the Lord of, of the Lord as the environment of life, this is 
our reality. We live before, we live in God who knows, God who is present, God who is powerful. Let's turn secondly to the feelings we experience. As we are confronted with these theological truths about God and the intensely personal truth that these are not just facts out there, that this is true for us, that God knows you, that God is present with you, that God formed you, how are we left feeling? What is it we feel? Well, it would seem from a reading of verse 7 that David experiences a sense of being overwhelmed, that that God's omniscience, his complete knowledge of all things, that his presence everywhere that leaves David wanting to hide or, or, or to run away. Listen to verse 7. Where, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? This knowledge of God and God's, God's complete knowledge and his presence and his power is overwhelming. Verse 5 uh, translated, you hem me in behind and before. Th- that word translated to hem me in is a word elsewhere translated to speak of a siege, a military siege that is we, we, are, we are trapped. There's nowhere to go. We live in the environment of an all-knowing, all-powerful, always-present God, and there is nowhere where we can go. Life in the presence of God, when we realize that God knows all, that God is everywhere, that God is all-powerful, can actually feel like a bit of a threat. We cannot get away from Him. We, we cannot hide no matter where we go, no matter what, what we do, God is present there. God knows. Before we get there, God knows. And, and that can fill us with a sense of uneasiness. Roy Clement says this, David's description of God is like some master detective who snoops into every detail of his existence. Armed with x-ray cameras and laser probes, he's like the oppressive, all-seeing eye of the big brother in George Orwell's novel, 1984. We are confronted with these truths of who God is and what our life inevitably, where our life is inevitably lived in the presence of God. And we may feel overwhelmed. We may be tempted to hide. We may be tempted to run. Not only from God, but from one another as well. In regards to how we hide from one another, William P. Brown writes this, impenetrable defenses are developed to protect our knowledge from unwanted intruders. People retreat from relationships, make their true reality, and talk in anonymity or in disguise. We vigorously guard ourselves against divulging too much. We entrust ourselves to no one but ourselves. Each home is an enclave, each self an island. With regards to hiding from God, we need only think of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. When they sinned, they hid from God. They sewed fig leaves together. Walkie and Houston write this. Intuitively, we resist this kind of invasion. We protect privacy. Before God, but the reality is before God, we stand naked and exposed. God knows all. God is present everywhere. Every deed, every thought, every motive, every desire, everything about you, about your life, 
about me, about my life, is known by God. Everything that I do, everything you do, is done in the presence of God. We cannot hide. We cannot get away from Him. There is no hiding from God, and trying to is irrational when we see the truth about God. That leads us to the third heading of our exploration, exploration this morning, and that is the dangers that we face. At this point, we're going to turn to what is the most difficult and perhaps disturbing part of this psalm, beginning in verse 19, probably struck you as a little odd as I read through this psalm. We come to these verses. I'll read verses 19 to 22 again. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. In the context of all that we read before that, don't we get there and go, what? What? How does that fit? How is that Christian? I mean, doesn't that jar us a little bit? Derek Kidner writes this, that that moments like this create an embarrassing problem for Christians. I mean, I've never gotten a greeting card that has these verses written on it. Some of you are perhaps familiar with the, the term imprecatory. Imprecatory is an adjective. The noun is imprecation, which means invoking evil or speaking a curse. And there are a number of psalms, including Psalm 139, that are listed among the imprecatory psalms. That is, these are prayers that have this kind of language in them, where there's this spoken curse over enemies. Now, there are a number of these moments within the psalms, and and here's one of them. And and we're faced with the question, what, what are we to do with this? How are we to understand this? How does this make sense and fit? So I want to say a couple things generally about imprecatory verses, and then I'll say a couple specific things about these verses. First, one thing we need to understand when it comes to these imprecatory statements that we encounter in the Psalms or elsewhere, uh, we need to understand, first of all, that, that at their root is a plea for justice. It is a longing for the righteous to be vindicated. When the wicked seem to be prospering, when evil men and women are oppressing others, are harming others, there is an understandable desire for justice, for things to be set right. We need to understand that. Second, we need to understand where we live, that we live in a new situation because we live as those uh, on this side of the cross. We Know that God became flesh, that Christ came, that Christ suffered the penalty. He he suffered for our sin, for our sin and the sin of other sinners. That he paid the price for all who put their trust in him. And we know that Christ is coming again and that one day Christ will set all things right. David and the other psalmists didn't know that. They didn't have the cross before them. They didn't understand anything about the return of Christ to set all things right. And so here's what Kidna writes. To get get fully in tune with the psalmists on this issue, we should have to suspend our consciousness of having a gospel to impart. That is, 
if we put the cross aside for a second and imagine that we don't know that, and our assurance of a final writings of wrong, that is, Christ's promised second coming when he will judge evil and he will pour out his judgment on those who persist in their rebellion against God to the end, then we can try and adapt or apprehend the mindset of the psalmists. So we need to understand that we live on this side of the cross. We know that Christ suffered the penalty for our sin and the sin of others. We know that one day Jesus will come back as judge to set all things right, that that right will be shown to be right and evil will be vanquished. And so now as those who live as followers of Christ, we live as ministers of reconciliation. We are called to be proclaimers of good news. We are called to love our enemies. We are called to pray for those who persecute us. So we need to recognize those general things as we think about imprecatory psalms. But turning to these verses in particular here, let me make a couple things clear. First is this, that this is not David being vindictive. This is not about personal vengeance. In fact, we look at David and we see a man who who was often restrained when he may have been inclined to retaliate. Think of how often he ran from Saul rather than fighting back. Or when his son Absalom stole the throne, David fled rather than fighting back. So no, this is not personal vengeance or vindictiveness. This is evidence of his passion for justice. His his passion for God. And and all that God stands, which, which means that it includes his abhorrence of what is evil, what is sinful, what is in rebellion to God. And so here... He resists all who stand against God. And secondly, I want you to see that the thrust of these verses is not ultimately judgment. David here is zealously reacting to those who have chosen to be enemies of God. He wants nothing to do with them. Listen to the language. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Get away from me. He does not want to be identified with those who are in rebellion against God, those who are evil, those who are bloodthirsty. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion? David wants to separate himself from all those who are in rebellion against God. He does not want to be identified with them. He wants to stand apart from them. He wants to be with God. And so here he says, away from me. God, I'm not with them. I'm not with them, Lord. What is profoundly important for us to recognize at this point is what David sees next, what he says next. David sees not only the threat of evil ones around him with whom he does not want to be identified, he sees that evil is within him. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, his avoidance of evil people is not because he's too good for such people, but because he cannot trust himself in evil company. David knows that he too is sinful, that he is prone to the very same sins, and so he prays. Look at verse 23 with me. Search me, God, and know me. Uh, Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. See, evil is not just out there. David does not want to be with those who are in rebellion against God, but he recognizes within himself that there is stuff that's not right. And he says, search me, God. Show me if there's any offensive way in me, God. Lead me in the way everlasting. There is no pride here. 
There is no self-righteousness here. There is only humility. A crying out to God. David longs for God to search his heart so that anything that's not right might be rooted out, that God might do surgery and, and cut that out of his life. And that God would lead him in righteousness, the way of righteousness, the way everlasting as opposed to the way of the wicked. Remember, if you were with us in the beginning, Psalm 1. Two ways before us, the way of blessedness and the way of destruction, the way of the wicked. David desperately wants to be led in the way of blessedness, the way everlasting. And so David here invites God to operate on him, to cut him open, to expose what is not right, to expose what is offensive, to, to cut it out, and to lead him in the way that he should walk. Boyce writes, Happy the Christian who prays this every day, who puts himself or herself into the presence of the all-seeing God, who stands in his light and is willing to have anything and everything which is not right brought to light and judged. If you're here this morning, if you're with us, and you have never put your faith in Jesus... I want to just make it clear to you. The Bible tells us that one day you will stand before Him. You will stand before the God that we encounter in Psalm 139. The God who knows everything about you. The God who is present with you always. The God who made you, who created you, who knit you together in your mother's womb. Who, whom you cannot get away from. Hebrews 4, 13, we read, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We hear these truths. We're confronted with the, the reality of a, an omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent God. And, and our inclination is to run. It is to hide. It is to get away. But Psalm 39 makes it so clear that we can't. No matter where you go, no matter how you try, you cannot get away from God. And I want to say to you, though that is the natural inclination of our hearts, it is not only irrational because we can't do it, but it is unnecessary because this God loves you. God before whom you will stand the God who knows all, the God who is always present with you, the God who created you, is a God who in His love for you has made a way for you to be made right, for you to be adopted as His daughter, as His son. The God before whom you stand utterly vulnerable, naked and exposed, is not surprised by what He sees. He is not surprised by your sin by your failures, by your rebellion. He knows you. He loves you. He made you. And He longs for you to surrender to Him. Surrender to His redemptive work. To surrender to Christ, the Son, who died on the cross to pay the price for your sin. And through whom you can be made righteous. Oh, that you would surrender to Jesus. That you would bow your knee to Jesus. 
that you would receive his forgiveness, that you would let him clothe you with his perfection, that you would let the Father wrap his arms around you and adopt you as his daughter and as his son. You maybe feel the inclination to run and to hide, but you don't need to. Come to Jesus. And how about the rest of us? Believers, those who have already put their faith in Jesus, what what is Jesus saying to you this morning? Uh, This prayer of surrender is not specifically aimed at those who don't yet know Christ, who aren't yet in a relationship with Jesus, though it's certainly relevant to everyone. It's, It's relevant to those of us who've already put our faith in Christ, who are in a relationship with Christ. It's David who writes this. It's David who first prays this. This prayer of David is a prayer he realized that he lived before God who is omniscient, who is omnipresent, who is omnipotent. God who knew him personally, thoroughly, completely. God who was present with him, always God who formed him. And I want to say to each of us that God knows you thoroughly, completely. God is present with you always, everywhere, Always has been, and God created you. He formed you. He knows you intimately. And so what is Jesus saying to you? What is he saying to me? David prays, search me, God, and know me. David prays to the one that he has already acknowledged who knows everything. And David says, God, search me. Know me. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lord, cut out those things in me that are not right. Cut out those things in my life that are an offense to you. And lead me in the way everlasting. So let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. What is Jesus saying to you? What is it in your life that Jesus is putting his finger on saying, I want to cut this out. We need to do some surgery here. Many of you, I hope, if you haven't, I implore you, read the Narnia Chronicles. But any of you who have, you're familiar with book five, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that book, we meet a little boy, he's a bit of a brat, named Eustace, not a nice fellow, beastly, I think is how C.S. Lewis describes him in the story. And he is with his cousins Edmund and Lucy, and much to his chagrin, he is swept up into Narnia and this adventure. And over the course of time, he actually becomes a dragon. Before he became a dragon, as a little boy, he put on a bracelet that he found in a cave full of treasure. And and so when he becomes a dragon, that bracelet digs into his arm that is now a leg and much bigger. And it causes incredible pain. And, and over the course of uh, his suffering, he, he desires to, to stop being a dragon, to be a boy again, but he doesn't know how. And I want to read a portion of the story to you. He encounters a lion, Aslan, the Christ figure, who tells him that he needs to undress. And, and Eustace is... He's puzzled at first, but then he realizes that much like a snake sheds a skin, so too a dragon can. We pick up the story after he has tried this. 
tried to peel off his skin. We read this, the words from Eustace. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And, And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my legs, so I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the others and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. The lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And, And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I'd been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath that now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. David cries out, search me, God. Show me if there is any offensive way in me. David surrenders to the God who knows all, who is present everywhere, who has formed him, who has all power. This morning, in this season, what is Jesus saying to you? Will you pray this prayer of surrender? Will you lay down before him Say, Lord, search me. Search me. You you know me. You're present with me. You are all powerful. And I want you to do your work in me. Will you lay down before Christ this morning and invite him to undragon you afresh? Will you surrender to him daily? Will you and I pray this prayer? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It may be daunting, for us to surrender. It may be daunting to lay down before Christ and say, you need to undress me. You you need to root these things out of me. It may be scary, but surrender is good because we surrender to one who is good, one who loves us more than we can understand, one who gave his life for us that we might be redeemed And here we learn, here we are invited to join David, to join saints through the centuries who surrender to Jesus afresh and pray this prayer. Search me, O God, and know me. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
Amen.